Dear Father, thank You, Father, for the gift of Your Son. Who amongst us, Father, could ever give such a gift if it were up to us to offer our own children in sacrifice for the lives of others? But You saw fit to do it, Father, with the perfect Son, the the eternal Son, the One who had been there before the beginning, who is one with You, we are told. Father, You gave us a gift that's unimaginable, incomparable. And yet, Father, You did it with each of us in mind. Thank You, Father, for that gift and for the day today to remember it, perhaps above other days, but no less than any day. Father, we ask that as we go into Your Word, that Your Word, Father, has been prepared for us for this day, for our own edification, Father, for our instruction and correction, but but mostly, Father, as every page of the Bible does, it testifies to Your Son and Your love to us through Your Son. And we look for that today in the Word as we open. Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit would be the teacher and that the Holy Spirit in each of us would also be the one to bring the knowledge and to bring the learning that we'd so much desire and that because You are the one teaching and You are the one instructing, we can learn so much, Father. If only we give our hearts to it and we ask for that this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, if you don't have a Bible with you today, that's no problem because I have a feeling there's one in front of you in the pew in the back of the seat. But please, if you have a chance, open your Bibles to First Peter chapter 5. We are going to finish the book today, as I promised. We'll take just the briefest of moments to review where we came in from last week. Last week was that challenging discussion on trials, on persecution. We were treated to a view out of Scripture that I doubt many in our Christian culture today give any attention to or desire to listen to, uh, particularly in the world we have today where it's a kind of feel-good Christianity. And if I'm being unfair, I apologize. I see it so often, though, on TV certainly, but even in churches around this city and other cities, there's a sense here that we have to come to church so that we can feel good about ourselves and leave with an optimistic attitude about what lays before us. And that's certainly understandable. I don't know that that's realistic, though, in light of what Scripture has to teach. And rather than go through it all at length, I'll just give you what another gentleman did in summarizing chapter 4 of 1 Peter, Thomas Constable from Dallas Theological Seminary. He summarizes it this way. He says, The most striking feature of Peter's teaching on suffering for Christ is its bold emphasis on the sovereignty and the initiative of God, even in the suffering of his own people. And he gave the same six points that I tried to review for you last week. And here's how he summarized those six points out of chapter 4. So, He says, number one, God allows us to suffer to demonstrate our character. Verse 12. Those who identify themselves with Jesus Christ will share in the sufferings of our Savior. Verse 13. Our sufferings will be an occasion for God to bless us. Verse 14. In addition, our suffering will glorify God. Verse 16. He then redirected our perspective on suffering by reminding us of the difference in the time and the intensity of our sufferings as compared with unbelievers which he says in verses 17 and 18. And then finally, he concluded with an exhortation to trust God and to trust His sovereignty and then to do what is right. Verse 19. There you have it. Now, for some of you, you're probably thinking, well, I shouldn't have shown up last week. I could have saved a good hour, just shown up today. I got all the same material. Maybe he'll do that with today's lesson. We'll get to lunch early. That's the essence, certainly, of what we saw last week in chapter 4. Now, how does that teaching fit into today's culture, into today's church culture? Are we willing to suffer, much less pray for it, for the name of Christ? For the privilege even to suffer for His name? Well, let me tell you, any time a group is called to do that, or has been brought to the point of suffering, it puts a premium on leadership. 
It puts a premium on the quality of the leadership over that group. There's a saying. We use it all the time, right? When the times get tough, the tough get going, right? We use that in, in a lot of different contexts. But when times get tough, the weak fall away. That's the other side of that equation that we often don't think about. And good leadership, good leadership is what you depend on to prepare a group and to hold it together in a time of suffering. That is why Peter does what he does in his letter. Having just talked here about suffering in chapter 4, it's only natural now for him to go into a chapter on leadership and on our response to leadership. Because if it is the case that he's preparing this church for suffering, which we know he was, then it's also the case that he has to make sure that the leadership is prepared to do their job and those in the church who follow are likewise prepared for what they will be told to do by their leadership. Look at verses 1 through 3 as we begin the chapter today. He says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge but proving to be examples to the flock. With his final therefore, and we've seen multiple therefores going through this letter, with his final one, he sets his gaze squarely on the leadership in this church. And so that's what I'm going to do as well, for the most part, this morning. Peter gives the elders of this church an exhortation. He says, I exhort you. I don't know if you understand that word. A lot of people don't. An exhortation, it's, it's not just a, a strongly worded statement. It's not just encouragement. It's not just a, an argument or a request. An exhortation is a very specific thing in Scripture. It is an appeal, but it's one based on a compelling argument or self-evident circumstances. In other words, you might even think of it as a reminder. I'm telling you something you already know. And the logic and the sense of it is self-evident. You don't need me to make a good argument. You just need me to compel you to do what you already know you should do. That's what an exhortation is. And I say it is, I beseech you. That's the biblical way, if you've ever heard that term. Parents don't use it with kids. They don't respect it as much as they used to. I beseech you to clean your room. Yeah, try that. Now, what's interesting as we start chapter 5 is he doesn't do what you think he might have done, what he really could have done. Well, maybe what he should have done in some sense. He doesn't step in and say, I command you as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He could have said that. He had every right to say that. And had he said that, it would have been enough. He doesn't have to justify what he says. As a man called and commissioned by God in the way that he was to be an apostle, he had every right to simply make his statement on its face. But instead, what he chooses to do is make an appeal based on his shared experience and his shared obligation with them as an elder. He refers to himself, in fact, as a fellow elder or a fellow under-shepherd. The word is sum presbyteros. Sum is the word together. I'm I'm together with you. Presbyteros means as an elder. I'm not a chief elder. I'm with you as an elder. In other words, he's an equal. Look how he mentions it. He says, I'm an equal in the sense of suffering. I witness the suffering of our Lord Firsthand. So, in other words, I understand what I'm asking you to do when I've said to you, be prepared to suffer. I know what that looks like. And he says, I'm also a partaker in the promised reward here, of this shared reward of, of Christ's glory, which awaits all believers. So, he has the same obligation to honor that reward, to honor that glory, 
to be worthy of it in the sense of having done all that he can in obedience because of it. So he says, look, I understand what I'm asking you to do. I'm a fellow elder. I understand the sufferings. I understand the obligations that come with this privilege we have. And therefore, I am willing to follow my own advice. And he followed it all the way to an upside-down cross, as church tradition teaches. What Peter establishes here in this opening verse, and it's a principle I want to make very clear as much as I can to the church as I see you here today, is, and in fact it's a standard that the secular world understands very well, but sadly the church often forgets. And that principle is never ask someone to do something that you're not willing to do yourself. You know, I came out of the military for a time in my past, and a military commander is taught this axiom of leadership. Because it's very, very difficult for a leader to gain any respect from those they lead if they're only willing to sit in an armchair and say, why don't you take that hill? No one follows a man who does that, not willingly. But they will follow the man who picks up the flag or picks up the the rifle and says, follow me, you guys, we're taking that hill. There's a sense of respect that naturally comes to any man or woman who would lead out of an example rather than merely out of their own words. Coaches in the, in the athletic community uh, follow this. Any successful coach, I would argue, must follow this. The coach who would give instruction on the basis of their own experience and their own capability and their own learnedness in their own sport, that's the kind of coach that a, that a student in the game will follow. But to someone who's never had to take on the challenges of athletics, they're not a very compelling coach to those who would try to do it. How about a parent? How about the old phrase, don't do as I do, but do as I say? How well does that work? Try it, you'll find out. It doesn't work very well at all. We understand that principle instinctively, don't we? We all live by it, hopefully. Peter is saying the same thing here. That's all he's saying. He's saying, in fact, he repeats it in verse 3. He says the leader is to be an example to the flock. To live according to their own teaching. This is, I think, the one true model of biblical leadership. The true model of biblical leadership is that you would live as an example and lead by example. It is, by the way, the opposite of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is to say what should be done, but not to do it your own life. The biblical model of leadership, on the other hand, is to live not just in words, but in actions. For example, if if the leaders in a church were to stress the importance of Bible study to their congregation, the best way they can do that is by their own participation and perhaps even their own leading in Bible study. And I don't just mean in a private context, though that's certainly a good way to do it. It has to be public, otherwise to what benefit does it have for the sake of modeling or being an example? You have to be public in your example. That's self-evident. So for the church who would say Bible study is an important discipline of the faith, they ought to see that in their leadership. If a leader wants to encourage their congregation in the regular practice of prayer, they're going to find no more effective means to do that than in public prayer with the congregation. We should lead by example. I would also argue there's a reverse principle here. That if the flock is suffering from various ills, if if there's, for just example's sake, if you had a flock that had a tendency to inappropriate gossip or poor attendance at church functions or a lack of compassion for the needy or a general hesitation to share the gospel with unbelievers. I would argue, and I've seen this in my own walk, I would argue that you need to look no further than the leadership in that church to understand why those things are of concern in that fellowship. Because almost invariably, churches that suffer from those kind of problems or any kind of problem will see those problems mirrored in the lives of their leadership. That's not a perfect rule. I realize you may have good leaders and still have people do the wrong thing. That's, that's understandable too. 
But I think when the body as a whole is suffering, the leadership is at least partly responsible in their own walk. So I think when you look at Peter's argument as he opens up in chapter 5 here, he's making an argument on the basis of a shared experience, of a shared personal obligation in leadership, and doing so rather than on apostolic authority because he believes he actually can make a stronger case through the example of his own life than he could if he merely rested on his apostolic authority. In fact, if it's true for an apostle to say that his stronger argument is made by example than by his mere uh, official capacity, then how much more so will that be true for those who would be under-shepherds in the church today? That your greatest authority, your greatest opportunity to bring men and women along in their walk comes from your own example more so than just from your mere authority in the church. There's a lesson in that, I think, for all of us. Our strength, our usefulness as the Lord's under-shepherds is directly proportionate to the success of our own personal walk of obedience and humility. And I will stand on that statement. Our own usefulness to the Lord is directly proportional to the quality of our own spiritual walk. Then in verse 2, Peter continues his instruction by telling the leaders they should shepherd the flock, but not under compulsion, voluntarily, and according to the will of God, not for sordid gain and with eagerness. Not lording over those under their care, but living as an example. There's a number of principles there. We don't have to spend a great deal of time on each one, but I want to show you a thread that runs through them all. First, in verse 1, he says, a leader is to be an elder. Now, you may think we've already covered that, but I'm saying here now that the leader is not merely an elder by office. There's actually a meaning behind the word here that's implicit, that becomes a qualification in itself. The word here, presbyteros, it's where we get the word presbytery from, or presbyterian. The literal translation of the word in Greek, though, is old man. What Peter is saying here is he's calling himself a fellow old man. A fellow old man. The term here describes not just the state of someone's life, but it actually has more to do with their qualification to be a leader than you may have realized. You have to be an older man to be a leader in the church. Now, you and I could look at that and say, what does older mean? And clearly that's a relative term. And I think it's meant to be relative. Because depending on the, the general age of the congregation, old is a generally is a relevant term. I've been in some congregations where the general, uh, you know, when, when my wife and I walked in, we lowered the average age by about 40 years. And an elder in that church was getting up there, right? Had to be. You know, a 60-year-old, they were the young guys. So it, it's a sense not only of where they stood in their own walk, but in relative terms to the body where they stand. And I think this confirms something that Paul teaches in his pastoral letters, if you've read 1st, 2nd Timothy or Titus, when he talks about the requirements for leadership in the church. He describes these leaders as men who have attained to a certain level of spiritual maturity. That's implicit in the requirement to be an elder. The point I'm making here is the Bible views age as a necessity, though not a sufficiency, for biblical leadership. Because it views age as a necessary quality to obtaining a certain degree of wisdom and spiritual knowledge, spiritual maturity in your own walk. You can't become spiritually mature overnight. I know we'd love to. I know we all want to. But it doesn't work that way. I mean, Paul was a good example of that. Paul, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, as he described himself, which would tell us a lot about what he already knew. He already knew a lot about the Old Testament. He already knew a lot about the meaning of all the sacrificial system and all that went with it. And yet, after he came to faith on the road to Damascus, he spent time alone with God learning or relearning a whole bunch of things. There was a degree of maturity even for that man required. 
And I think part of the reason that's a requirement is you can't fake it. You can't fake it. If we were consistent in looking to the older men in our church for leadership, you can't fake age, even if it doesn't always bring maturity. You can't fake age. One of my favorite stories of that is actually a story about the Marx Brothers, if some of you may remember. The younger folks in here, just be patient. The story doesn't take very long. But the Marx Brothers actually started out as a child group, a child vaudeville act. And they would travel with their mom. And at the point where they all got above the age of 13 and got into their early 20s even, the mom was still telling the train conductors when they traveled that these were kids under the age of 13 so she could get the half-price fare. And one time the conductor walked up to this, the, the mother was Minnie, Minnie Marks. How would you like to have that name? And the conductor walked up to her at one point and said, you know, your children, one of them's in the, in the smoking car with a cigar, and the other one's back in the, in the stateroom shaving. And the mom says, oh, they grow up so fast. <laughs> you can't fake age. I mean, that's the bottom line. But then again, the other side of this coin is not all of us who are older will automatically have spiritual maturity. That goes without saying, I hope. The believer is expected to grow spiritually as they grow physically. It's expected to go hand in hand. And I want to also note here something that I think is very important and often overlooked in the church. Leaders are not called to a higher level of maturity than believers in general. Did you know that? It's not as though Scripture has said... Only those who have worked for the extra credit are eligible to be leaders. The rest of you, unless you're willing to make that extra effort, you can't be considered for leadership. No, that's nonsense. What the Scripture says is we are all attaining to the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, to the fullness of that, and to make that our life's goal. The difference is we're all in the race together. Only the ones who run to the front of the pack are qualified for leadership. That's the sense of it. But nobody's excused from the race. And nobody's got a different finish line from anybody else. We just look for those who are the most diligent, the most uh, mature in that process to be our leaders. That's the only requirement. So a leader should generally come from among the older, more mature members of a congregation. It should be a man, as Scripture provides. And they should show in their walk evidence of that maturity. Lest we be uh, wrong, of course, for elevating someone too quickly. Then in verse 2, Peter says that leader must act as a shepherd of the flock. The word shepherd here, poimino, poimino, it just means literally one who tends, as in tending to sheep. Two things here. First of all, your leaders are shepherds, you're sheep. And I don't know if you've ever had any opportunity to be around sheep. Most of us haven't, I'm sure. They're fairly dumb animals. I mean, let's be honest about it. Sheep in general are not very bright. Uh, that's why they need shepherds. I've heard stories, I'm not sure how many of them are true, but I've heard stories about how a sheep sometimes will wander too far into the water drinking and drown. A sheep will you know, walk off the end of a cliff. A sheep, you know, they're not terribly bright animals. Now, it's interesting that God chooses to use that analogy for his own people, isn't it? Lest we think too much of ourselves. The word for shepherd, or the, the intent here when we talk about our leaders being shepherd then, is that they would feed the sheep. You've heard that before when we started this class looking at John's Gospel, right? The shepherd leads the sheep. The shepherd guides them to safe places. The shepherd guards them from danger, keeps them in order, keeps them moving together into one, one goal. What's different about that than what you see elsewhere is the role of the leader in the church as a shepherd is not a CEO. It is not a model taken out of the corporate world where you have a kind of a ladder or a pyramid of leadership where the CEO sits on the top and barks out orders to all the lieutenants who then send that down the chain and it just kind of trickles down and all the real work is done at the lowest levels. And the burden, therefore, falls on, that low, on those rank-and-file members. Everything is sort of set up for the CEO to be served. 
to be followed, to be listened to. Everything that that person wants is what everyone else is organized to do. That's an exactly opposite model of what the church model is as provided by Christ. Remember when he washed the feet of the disciples and he says, you need to be like me. Serve one another. Those who are the least among you will be the greatest. So basically, take that pyramid and flip it on its head and you put the the pastor, if that's what you want to call them, at the bottom. That's why I said last week, if you want to give the guy a personal parking space, that's fine. Just make sure it's the farthest one from the front door. Right? That's That's the whole concept. Now, who's serving who? The whole concept is that the leadership, starting with the pastor and any leadership with that person, is set up to support the needs of the fellowship so that they would end up doing the, the most, if you will. They would be the ones who would be enabled into great things in ministry. That's the biblical model. That's the servant leadership model of the church. Another way to put it is that a shepherd can't drive the flock from behind. He must lead the flock from in front. It's a servant model of take the flock where they're supposed to go. Not in an oppressive way, but rather by setting the right example. Next, he says it has to be a voluntary kind of service. Now, that may seem a bit odd. I mean, after all, when's the last time you saw somebody pressed into service involuntarily in the church? But, you know, it's funny that actually happens. I have friends who minister in other countries, particularly in third world countries, where the church is emerging and is not new in that culture, or is new in that culture. There's not much history there. And in many cases, women come to the faith before men. I don't know if there's a biblical principle behind that. I don't know if it's just whatever it is. But in any event, a lot of these churches start with more women than men. But they want to be honoring to the Scripture. They want to be consistent with the instructions given in Scripture, so they look for a man to lead them. And they get like one or two guys who come into the fellowship. They're brand new Christians, and the women are like, you're in charge. You're the pastor. That literally happens. I have a friend who's been in the Middle East for a while ministering there, and he talks about that happening in a lot of churches in the Middle East where faith is rare for the most part, and men in faith is very rare. The Scripture would tell us those people cannot be pressed into service despite the circumstances. They would be better to go without a leader than to have one who does so without a voluntary desire to be there. Now, I want you to notice how that desire arises, though. Where does the desire to be a leader arise? It arises out of verse 4, by the will of God. And I think this is the genius, this is the, the miracle of how God brings leaders into the fold. A man who discovers a sincere desire to be an under-shepherd, to be an elder, or to serve God's people in some leadership role, is showing evidence of God's work in his heart, or should be. Those who would express an interest and a desire to, to serve and who meet the qualifications and have shown their character and done all that the Scripture requires, what you're seeing in that person is God's stamp of approval on their life and God's elevating of that man into leadership. Really, it's only up to the other leaders at that point to confirm and acknowledge and invite that person into leadership. You can't lobby for the job, in other words. You can't politic for it. You can't negotiate for it or act like you're in some kind of political race for it. It starts with God. It's confirmed in the heart of the individual, knowing that that's what they're called to do. And then it's affirmed and made official by those around them who see the same thing. In other words, the whole process is about watching God at work, not creating it out of our own hearts. That's when you'll get the right leader in the role because that person is coming to the role with God's hand. Next, the leader is not to find his source of desire in sordid gain. The word sordid there just means greedy. It means dishonest. He didn't say, the man who serves God cannot serve for the point of gain. That would be unfair. In fact, Peter and, and, and other leaders, as you look through the New Testament, make repeated comments about the fact that a worker is worthy of his hire. 
that it is unreasonable, unfair for the congregation to ask someone to step into a role of serving their spiritual needs and then deny them the ability to take care of themselves and their family. No one would expect that. No one should expect that. It's just that that, that gain shouldn't be sorted. It shouldn't dominate their desires. It shouldn't dominate their attention. The leader must never fall prey to the love of money or seek to use God's people for his own personal gain. That would be sordid gain, and that would be a man you would not want in leadership. So what we're talking about here is a man who would serve out of a love for the Lord and for his people, rather than to see what he can get out of it. You know, that's a really tough test today. I find it sad. I've had the opportunity on occasion to be involved in churches that were in the middle of a pastor search, like you are here today. And at times I've had a chance to talk with the leadership about how they're conducting that search, or even about the candidates that they're looking for in that search. And it's interesting to me how quickly those conversations turn to money. How often it is that the discussion really centers around what the pastor's salary needs are and can we meet it versus simply a discussion about did God call you into this position and do we see that calling? And if so, then nothing should stop it. I mean, that's the irony here, right? If God has actually said you're the person for this pulpit and the church sees that and confirms it, could there be any reason on earth to prevent that person from going into that pulpit? If it's, not what the money, if it's not the money the pastor thought they needed, so be it. That God must have some other plan for their provision. Or, on the other hand, if the church feels like they need to pay this man a certain amount, but it's not in the budget today, again, God must have some plan for providing for that provision. Because if it is the case that that man was meant to be in this job, God's already got those details worked out, even if we don't know it yet. But on the other hand, on the other hand if God has not placed that man there, I don't care how easily you make the budget. I don't care how much the other stuff falls into place. It's going to be a miserable fit and it's going to be a, a failure in the long run because it's against God's will. It's not his desire for that church. So the point here is that the test of the man's heart needs to be that he's there for the right reason. The test of the fellowship's heart needs to be that they're selecting the man for the right reason. None of those other things should even really be significant discussions, though they will be in the discussion because the reality is these people are obligated to support those who minister to them. That's an expectation of Scripture. In fact, I think it would be a shame on any congregation if it was the case that they were not providing sufficiently that the pastor had trouble throughout the week figuring out how to pay for their food, how to keep their kids in clothes. I mean, if that's on the mind of that man, he's not going to be serving the needs of the fellowship very well either. So it works both ways. Here's a rule of thumb I would give you, because I know you are involved in this search, and so I know you have these thoughts on your mind. A leader who takes his income from the congregation should not enjoy a lifestyle substantially better than the congregation as a whole. His commitment to serve should not vary by the level of compensation. And his heart to serve, and in fact, even his service itself, should begin even before the compensation begins, if that's possible. Finally, Peter says the leader, the leader should be eager to serve. And that, this just goes hand in hand with everything else we've already said up to this point. It puts everything in perspective. But it offers a warning, sort of a negative sense here. If a leader in a church, and I'm thinking generally here across the board, not just elders, but men uh, and even to some extent women who would lead in one capacity or another. If that person ever wakes up one day and finds himself dreading the op opportunity to go serve in the church that day, if, if the joy of that service is gone, if the desire to serve has been replaced with this feeling of compulsory obligation, if the privilege has become a burden, if you ever wake up and that's how you're seeing your opportunity to serve in the church, you have ceased to be a shepherd. You may still be in the role for a time because you haven't taken the step of actually backing out of the role, but the reality is, spiritually speaking, you're no longer a shepherd. 
you're no longer fulfilling that role and you need to step down. Now, that person, if they are an elder, for example, they're no less an elder because they step out of service. Remember, what does the term mean? An old, mature, spiritually mature person. You're not less old. You're not less spiritually mature, presumably. So the the qualification and therefore the title doesn't disappear. But your responsibilities to serve in that capacity certainly might and maybe should. And in that case, the person would retire back into a regular role, a non-leadership role, though they would still have the, and deserve the title of elder and be respected on that basis. So those are the essential characteristics Peter gives for a leader in the church. And look at how they come together to suit his purpose. These qualifications, these characteristics, are particularly important if your aim is a strong, healthy flock of sheep. If your aim here is to have sheep who they themselves are prepared to stand in the day of their testing. Good leadership of this quality in these ways is going to be essential to a strong and effective church in the world today. The reward to the church for strong leadership is that they themselves would stand in a healthy manner as they deal with the trials of the day. But the leaders themselves have a benefit here that Peter makes a passing mention to. Look at verse 4. He says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Leaders, in other words, who have been faithful in their calling are assured that at the moment they stand before Christ at a place in time we call the judgment seat of Christ, in that moment, a leader will receive a reward on the basis of faithful leadership. Peter calls this reward the crown of glory. He calls it an unfading crown. Now, I want to give you just a moment of eschatology here that I'm not sure that you may understand, certainly many Christians don't, this is not euphemistic for salvation. If you've read through the Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, and you see crown of glory, crown of righteousness, these are not euphemisms for salvation. It's not another way of simply saying you'll have salvation. Look at the text of it, particularly in this case. First, the word. The word for crown here is Stephanos, which is where we get the word Stephen from, by the way. Just a small note in case anybody was paying attention. It's one of two words that the Bible uses for crown. The other one is diadem. Diadem is the kind of crown that you, you gain because you are royalty, because you have a right to it by birth. You inherit it. It's bestowed upon you. You don't earn it. You don't do anything for it because it came to you just by birth. It's the crown Jesus wears, by the way. As the king, he has a right to wear it. This crown, Stephanos, is like the wreath that was given to the one who would win a race in the Olympics. It's something you earn. It's something you only get if you meet a certain test. It's the kind of crown that, as Peter describes it here, we are trying to earn in our walk now. So we're not talking about salvation. In fact, one of the other things to notice is, when do you get the crown? You don't get it until you're standing before Christ. Well, I don't know about you guys, but the crown of salvation, if there is such a thing, I've already got that. I had that the moment I was... Saved. So whatever this crown is can't be the same crown because it doesn't get awarded to you until you stand before Christ. Those in the faith are there because of Christ's work. But our work is the measure for our reward in the eternal realm. And for the leader who would lead faithfully over the flock, there is a particular crown, a particular reward available called this crown of glory. What does it mean? What does it look like? What does it do for you? Can you spend it? I, mean, I don't know. But I know it's something that Peter himself looked forward to and makes clear that all leaders should look forward to. Paul uses uh, this word in describing a different kind of crown, one of the other five in Scripture, just as an example, out of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. 
He said, in the future there is laid up for me, now he's talking about himself, he said, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only me, but also to all who have, who have loved his appearing. So there's a particular kind of crown, which we're not clear exactly on what it means to love his appearing, but that's something Paul had assurance he would receive, and that others like him might receive. Again, not metaphors for salvation, but reasons that as men in the leadership realm of a church, we should be mindful not only of our obligation to the needs of the flock, but also of the potential that if we fail in that role, we're putting something real at jeopardy, something very meaningful, something that for an eternal time we will wish we hadn't lost. So in case you were tempted, by the way, to run out of here at this point thinking, well, that was a message for the leadership, but what about me? Because I'm not in leadership, or I don't think I'll be in leadership. Well, Peter's going to catch the rest of us now in the next series of verses. Look at verse 5. He says, You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He might exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him, because He cares for you. He begins here with younger men, but you know the word isn't men? It's actually younger ones. Younger ones. So he's speaking to everyone who's not an elder. Men, women, doesn't make any difference. He says, obey your elders. Let me tell you, this is a newsflash. Some of you may never have heard this before, but church is not a democracy. I know there are church traditions where they vote on almost everything, and I'm not saying that's altogether wrong, but that's not the model of biblical leadership. The model of biblical leadership is shepherd-sheep. Not sheep going to the polls, but... But a shepherd driving the sheep, directing the sheep, guarding the sheep, feeding the sheep. Now, that doesn't mean the sheep have no voice, but what I'm getting at is that if the congregation makes every decision on committee and there's never the time for the leaders to step forward and say, this is the right place to go, follow us, then the church is probably not going to end up in the right place. Margaret Thatcher had a great quote saying, leadership is not about compromise. Leadership is not about developing consensus. Leadership is about taking people somewhere they don't want to go. So he's saying here that church... Leadership depends on followers. You know, you can't get one without the other. And that those who are appointed over us should receive our obedience as they seek to obey Christ themselves. The writer of the Hebrews says it best, I guess, in verse 17 of chapter 13. The writer says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. I wonder if that isn't a veiled reference to our own lack of reward if we choose to be a thorn in the side of our leadership. Or maybe it, maybe it just speaks to the fact that when we cooperate with our leaders in a loving and submitted spirit, we not only make their task more successful, when we resist that, we're resisting God's will. We're resisting what God would have for us through our leadership. Did I just say that everything your leaders do are going to be right? No. And did I say you have to like it all? Well, absolutely not. But remember what we said about submission? If you only obey when they do what you want to do, that's not submission. Submission is when you go with something you don't want to do. That's the definition of submission. Your leaders are doing a tough job. We need to give them our obedience and support and expect them to make decisions in a biblically sound way, yes. But in every case, as much as possible, support them in that role. Peter then says, finally, in that set of verses, cast yourselves on God. All your anxieties, all your fears... If I had to pick one reason why we don't do what we're supposed to do as a church, either in the leadership or in those appointed to follow leadership, it's not for lack of resources, though that's often the excuse. It's not for lack of time, 
Though that's also often the excuse. It's out of fear. It's out of some unnamed, unidentified anxiety. What if it fails? What if it doesn't work? What if we go do all that, we'll spend all that time and no one shows up anyway? What if we spend all that money and then the money just goes out the door and no one ever walks in the door? What if we make that commitment and then no one comes through with all the volunteer time we are expecting? Well, you know what? All of those things might happen. I mean, in the end, what we're worried about is whether people do their job. Hey, guess what? They won't. Fundamentally, they won't. What we're supposed to do, on the other hand, is say, is God calling me to do this? Is he calling the church to do something? If he is, well then, let's go do it. And however he intends for it to turn out, that's how it'll turn out. Maybe his whole point is for us to walk a distance and fail, and in that there's an important lesson he wants us to understand. Who knows what his purpose is? We only need to know what he asked us to do. Like Abraham, right? Had no clue what he was going to do when he left Ur. He only knew that he was supposed to leave. Sometimes that's all God gives us. And then look at verses 8 and beyond. He says, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So as followers, for all that I've said about leaders, here's your short list. Number one, he says, be sober, be on alert. My version says be sober of spirit, but the words in spirit are not actually in the original Greek. I think it's probably implied, but I also think that he means it literally in the physical sense too. Don't be given over to wine. Don't be absorbed in things that take away your good judgment and sound thinking, that distract you, that let you escape from this world. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be very mindful of what's going on around us at all times and to be ready to deal with it, to be on alert. We all need to get serious about this war that we're engaged in. Serving in the kingdom of God is serious business. I think you all have been brought together at this time and at this place for reasons of God's desire, and He has a plan in that. What a shame it would be if, if each individual in this church didn't take that kind of seriousness of purpose into their own walk and view the privilege of coming here as just that, a privilege. And then take it a step further and say, what am I doing to contribute to what God is doing in that fellowship? And where are we supposed to go as a group? And make that kind of commitment in a personal sense so that at a corporate level, it has its good work. He says, be sober, be on alert, get serious. He says, you have to be that way because number two, the enemy hasn't stopped. You know, the enemy's not distracted. He says, the devil is like a lion, a roaring lion prowling around. You've heard this verse, I'm sure, many times before. He's basically saying, I like the way he starts this, he says, your adversary. You know, the devil's not simply against the church. The devil and and, and those who are aligned with him, the demonic realm, are not merely against Christ or the Pope or Billy Graham. or No, he's against you personally. Now, whether the enemy himself personally attacks you, he he may never personally attack you. He's only got himself and he's got millions of Christians and he can't be in more than one place at one time. He's a created being just like you and I are. So he's not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent. So he himself can't attack each one of us personally, presumably, but he's trying and he's got millions, presumably millions of demonic angels who are working with him in that regard. So he's got his forces to use and he will almost certainly through them or through himself personally take a swack at you somewhere along the line, if not many times in an attempt to slow you down and to distract you and to pull you off your walk. He says, Peter says, he sees us as prey. 
like a roaring lion. It reminds me of a funny story with P.T. Barnum. used to have a display where he would put a lion and a tiger and some other wild cat and a baby lamb in the same display. And they would all just be sitting there. And people would walk by and just marvel at how he got all of them to exist together like that. The reporter asked him, are you going to keep this in your act for a long time? He goes, oh yeah, as long as the lambs hold out. (laughs) As long as the supply of lambs hold out. It just goes to the point. You can't fake it. I mean, sooner or later, sooner or later, the fact that he sees us as prey and he is on the prowl is going to come together. And you can sit like that lamb might have done in that little cage thinking, well, they're fine now. I guess I don't have anything to worry about. Five minutes later, when the hunger's pangs started, that lamb was history. And I think that's exactly how it works in our life. You may have a good day or a good week or a good month in the, fact, in the sense that the enemy may forego a lot of effort at attacking you. But don't let that get you thinking that it's done for good. That somehow he doesn't still have you on his hit list along with all the others in the faith. He knows who you are and he understands what the enemy or he understands what the battle is about. Look at how we are to be prepared for that though. There's safety in numbers. That's implied in my mind by how he refers to the flock here in relationship to the, to, to the roaring lion. You know, as much as we gather together and work together and remain together in the church, there is an opportunity there for one another to strengthen, one another to guide and teach and encourage and to come to one's aid. The enemy is going to have a harder time with a flock than he is with a sole lamb sitting off by himself or herself. Secondly, we have to be prepared for that battle. And it comes through three simple steps. The first we mentioned, be alert, be ready. Not asleep at the wheel, not blissfully ignorant, but aware of the fact that attack is always right around the corner. Second, you have to resist. It's a simple word, but you know, it's often the case that's where the real fall down in our effort and our our game plan arises. It's in the fact that we don't even make any effort at all to resist. We never anticipate resistance. If you have in your life some weakness, something you do when you shouldn't do it, or you don't do, but you should do, Something that you know you're supposed to put aside in your life and it keeps coming back. It keeps coming. You know it's going to come back, right? We sit here today, whatever that thing is, you know it's coming back. What are you doing to prepare for that moment? What are you doing about it? Hoping that when you get to it, you'll do something differently than you did the last hundred times? It doesn't work that way, does it? What do you have to do? You have to consult God's Word. You have to consult the power of the Holy Spirit through prayer. You have to be using the tools God has given you in that way, the encouragement and the support of those in the faith around you. And then you have to have a game plan that says, the next time this happens, this is what I will be doing instead, and this is how I'll protect myself. You know, we talk about accountability partnerships or accountability relationships. For example, in my case, as a man who would come and teach others, I have a point of saying I'll never meet with another woman alone or drive in a car with a woman alone. These are not things that I have a particular concern about in my own experience, but I'm not going to take any chances. I'm not going to put myself in a position where someone could make an accusation, even, that's unfounded. I mean, that's just a simple rule. What is that? That's nothing more than being prepared to resist the devil when he might come at me in that particular way. Not because, and, and by the way, that's also the humility to know that I can't just say that, well, I'll never do that. That's a fool. That's a fool. You know that Peter, as we said at the very beginning of this, this series, he wrote this letter knowing he was the one who, when Jesus said, you will betray me before the cock crows three times. He said, never me, right? I'll be there with you to the death. This is the man who said that in his own experience, right? This is the man who then did betray Christ, who then went back to the Sea of Galilee and started fishing again, thinking, oh, well, I guess that's over. Right? This is the man that Jesus walked up to after he met him there and said, if you love me, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. In other words, what Peter is doing right now is, in a sense, restitution 
for how he responded the last time he had the opportunity to resist the devil. Now he's saying, hey, follow me in the way I am now living out this walk. And I am prepared to resist the devil. And I understand he's a roaring lion. And I am feeding the sheep. I am doing the, the role of an elder in the church, a fellow elder. Bringing you the Word of God because, in fact, that is the sword of the Spirit. That is the thing that will enable us to resist the devil. And that is the role that all of us in the church as leaders are called to do. And all of us as followers are called to respond to. 5.12, he says, Through Silvanus, our fellow brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. You see a man who's made that walk of maturity, who came from where we all start, pride and self-assurance, who came thinking that it was his following and his association with Christ that made him somebody special. He was one of the chosen apostles. He was the rock. He was number one. A man who said, I can handle anything that comes my way because of who I am. That's, that's who Peter was, as you see him in the Gospels. Who in, a, who in this room is not thought like that at some point? In fact, how many of us still think a little bit like that at times? And now look where he ends in this letter. This, this letter which was all about suffering for Christ, submitting to authority, relying on God to do the work in you. Look where he ends at the, the letter today. He says, it is the true grace of God that I am testifying about. And you can stand firm in that. That on the Easter Sunday, what better day to remember that it was God reaching into the hearts of unbelievers with the grace of the Gospel that gave us even the opportunity to be in this room. Why would we think that having come to faith in that way, now the work of faith will be done in some different way? It will be done in the same way. We stand firm in the fact that God through us can do a lot of great things, even if we are small in number, even if we are not mighty, even if we are not rich, even if we are not the, the, the famous of this world, so be it. The more glory goes to God that way. But if we are impatient, if we are untrusting, if we are filled with anxiety or fear, if we are unable to submit to authority and play a proper biblical role in authority, if all of those things come into play in our own walk, you are worthless to God in that you cannot be useful to Him in work. You're still loved by Him. You're still saved by grace. But you will go in as through fire. That is not the way we want to enter into our glory. I hope the letter, more than anything, has brought you to a recognition that the grace of God can help you stand firm in the face of anything, and it calls you to walk into the face of those things so that God Himself may be present in those moments. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll finish today. Dear Father, may Your grace, Father, reign in our hearts. May that grace, Father, be evident in the leaders You have appointed over us in the churches we attend, Father, that, that the leadership may be strong in their commitment to biblical principles, to serving, Father, out of a sincere desire to serve You. May we be good followers, Father, so that those servants would not be troubled by us, but rather would find joy in serving us. Father, may this church, as You have formed it, as You have built it up over the years, May it be called, Father, to do great things in Austin and beyond. Father, I do pray that it would be a source of pleasure to You. It would be a, a source of, of glory to You, Father. That the men and women who are gathered here would be useful far beyond their number. And that in the city that surrounds them, Father, they would bring Your name to those who've never heard it and they would 
bring glory to you by how they live out your commandments, how they show the love they have for one another. These, Father, are the things you've asked us to do in your name because you've called us, because you've done these things for us, because you yourselves loved us before we even knew you. Let us be worthy, Father, to be called children of the Most High God. Father, as we leave today, I pray we would go out with a renewed spirit to serve you in some capacity. May this church continue forward, Father, in all that you have planned for it. May it gather again in your name in many weeks to come. Thank you for the blessing to be a part of it, Father, and I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.